Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. My name is uh, Professor Oren Shibolet. I'm the head of the gastroenterology and hepatology department at Tel Aviv Medical Center, affiliated to Tel Aviv University and the president of the Israeli Association for the Study of the Liver. Uh, the episode today is called Bugs in the Liver, and I have two very, very distinguished guests, Alexander, uh, Alexander Kolowajcik, from the Systems Biology Department in the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel, and Ran Elinav, who is actually the Department Head of Systems Biology, also in the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel. And I was asked to say, because they both come from the same department, that the views that they represent is their own. And um, today we're going to talk about a very, very hot and sexy, controversial evolving, developing new subject, and this is the subject of the microbiome. Uh, we're going to talk about it generally, initially, and then we're going to talk about research methods in microbiome research and move on to uh, bugs in the liver, which is the main topic of today's uh, episode. So, Aran, I'll start with you. Not everybody swims in microbiome, for lack of other words. So I will say, uh, what is our current understanding of the role of the microbiome in health and disease? Thank you, Oren, and, and uh, I would say that I'm, I'm very happy to be with you and, and speaking to you. Um, you know, we, we uh, at times tend to think that the microbiome was there with us uh, forever, but we need to uh, remember that uh, the microbiome field was reborn just a decade and a half ago uh, with uh, some monumental uh, um, discoveries. Um, but we very quickly learned to appreciate that um, this huge ecosystem of microbes that includes, in addition to bacteria, also fungi, viruses, uh, eukaryotic uh, uh, cells, um, um, is, is fundamentally important to almost any aspect of our physiology and our health. Um, and perturbation between the communication channels that are intimately um, um, conducted between our human cells and our microbes um, are increasingly shown to impact the risk of developing uh, very common multifactorial diseases. Um, I think that um, the, the first decade of our very young field was characterized by rather observational and correlational uh, um, depiction of, of atlases describing the different um, microbiome changes that are associated with different health and disease states, which was very important, but also um, was uh, presenting to us the biggest challenge of our field, which is the differentiation between association, correlation, and causality. And, and I think what's really fascinating and, and interesting and also important in the coming decade of the slowly but surely maturing microbiome uh, a field is that we are now diving deep into mechanism, into molecular drivers of microbiome interactions with the host. And with that, we're starting to understand how the microbiome may impact important disease, including today's topic, the liver disease. So as Aran said, you know, it's, it's a very, very uh, young field. And uh, some of the new developments and the research developments like, you know, germ-free mice, 
uh, organs on a chip, metabolomics, trans transcriptomics, and others have really pushed this field forward. So, you know, the audience is, is not that aware of these new developments in research methods. And it would be very important if you can highlight, you know, what you think were the, the, the crucial breakthroughs in microbiome research. So for me, um, I kind of understand this as, um, because uh, re interactions between microbiome and the host are very complicated. And this is because we have many different bacteria, they produce many different metabolites that as, uh, act on many different cells. So basically in, in this field, there was a huge need of techniques that will allow us to look into all these three different things, microbes, uh, metabolites, and the host cells. And that's what happened. So for looking into bacteria, we classically use uh, sequencing-based methods, uh, so metagenomics, which are allowing us to tell which species of bacteria we have and how much of each kind. Right, so this is very helpful to, to say that these uh, people have this kind of microbes and others have different. Uh, we also have this more like culturomic-based approaches which allow us to grow bacteria that are in low abundance. And this is useful uh, for some um, applications for bacteria that are uh, also in the samples where there's a lot of human DNA. Um, so this is like one part of it. Then the other part is uh, is the human. So even when we think about liver, that what we see in the single cell uh, rna seq data uh, in the liver, we see about 30, between, between 30 and 40 different cell types. So to check how particular uh, microbiome acts on the liver, we need to check all of them. And this uh, single cell technologies allow us basically to see what exactly happens in each single cell so in hepatocyte, in immune cells, in endothelial cells and stellate cells and so on, uh, upon some change or upon disease. And this is really informative and very um, comprehensive. So we see quite a lot. And then the third thing is the metabolomics because uh, particularly for things that are not in the gut, so liver, but also other organs in, in the body, uh, the, the way the microbiome from the gut acts on them is through things that go through portals, portal circulation through the blood. And we can use mass spectrometry-based methods that uh, allow us to see what kind of metabolites are, uh, are in, in, in samples, so in the gut contents, or what we often do as well is we look into the portal blood because uh, that will tell us which ones are absorbed. So once we are able to describe um, these three different things, then we want to look into the uh, more mechanistic uh, understanding, as Aaron said. Uh, and for that, uh, imagine if you have 100 different bacteria in a human, you cannot infect, like give them to 100 different uh, germ-free mice. It's just not possible uh, from the technical point of view. So these methods like organoids, so small livers or small guts in the culture, allow us to do this kind of tests uh, in combination uh, in, in vitro and scale up pre-screen. And then we can do that, um, these experiments in, in other systems, but it just helps us to narrow it down. Uh, so I think this is kind of the key areas that uh, that are important in, in developing methods. I, you know, just to, to stimulate you, I mean, how much is this a mouse and a germ-free mouse-based field? It's a very much mouse germ-free based field, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, I would say that um, on the one hand, um, germ-free mice are still considered by us and by many others as, as a critical workhorse 
that enable us to um, elucidate causality, which is, I think, the biggest challenge and promise of our young and developing field in, in the coming decade uh, by the transfer of either individual bacteria or consortia of bacteria or even of whole microbiomes coming from mice or from humans into the germ-free settings where we can model the combination of genetic susceptibility and signaling by the microbiome, which represents a hub for the environment um, in driving, contributing, or mitigating uh, disease. But uh, germ-free mice are not a physiological um, animal, um, and, and this is a very extreme um, non-biological system um, that, that in many cases does not fully reflect what happens to a human in real life. We, we do not have germ-free humans uh, from the moment we are born. Um, so, so we try to combine germ-free mice uh, with um, more physiological models, such as um, antibiotic perturbations um, of colonized mice. Um, recently, we've been playing around with what we call wilding mice, which are mice that are genetically very well-defined, but carry um, a real-world mouse microbiome. And, and, and people um, have found that these more realistic and physiological models recapitulate human um, responses to the microbiome, to diet, and to drugs in a much more reproducible manner than um, the very clean system that we've been using for decades. Now, I want to ask you this, you know, how important is variables such as a place, ethnicity, diet, other things? Because, you know, I, I, was, I was at MGH doing mouse research, and then I brought these mice from there to Israel and nothing worked for me. And nowadays people say, oh yeah, because you changed their microbiome. I mean, but how important are these things, you know, in rural communities versus in humans versus urban communities, processed foods versus non-processed foods, et cetera, et cetera? Well, maybe I'll start and, and Ola will take it from there. Um, you know, we, we regard um, the microbiome in many different ways, but one of the ways I like most is, is to kind of regard the microbiome as a signaling hub that integrates into it many signals that come from the human body. For example, the human genome impacts the composition and the function of our microbes. The human immune system uh, does so as well, uh, but also um, a very wide variety of environmental factors, uh, such as the food we eat, um, um, the stress that we experience, the drugs we take, the geography in which we live and, and so on and so forth. And, and the microbiome takes all of these signals, integrates them and communicates them to the host. And, and, and we see our mission in life as decoding the alphabet of the language by which we and our microbes talk. We don't even know how many letters are in this alphabet, but we, we keep discovering them uh, one by one. We, with that said, what it tells us that the microbiome could explain many environmental differences in humans that could carry the same genes. Uh, for example, the, the most remarkable uh, uh, factor that influences how our microbiome reacts is our diet. Uh, and and this, this is overwhelmingly shown in multiple studies. And, and we've been kind of devo devoting our lab's work for it for, for many years now. And, and what was fascinating is that, that we found that not only the content or the composition of our diet impacts the microbes, which see it first and, and react to it in a very substantial manner, but also the timing of our diet, long-term patterns such as recurrent or yo-yo obesity, many different food-related factors shape our microbiome in a way that um, is super well-designed to our unique self, but also could change the microbiome towards a disease-contributing configuration. 
Ola, you want to add to this? I think it's pretty, pretty full. I mean, one thing that I would add maybe is that uh, it's also important developmentally. They, the, the bacteria will not show up in your gut out of nowhere. They are uh, given to you from your parents. And I think this is also important that, uh, that your microbiome is shaped in these early days. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there is data to, to suggest that that the microbiome is associated with behavioral changes, autism, etc. But I mean, this is still really, really in infancy. I mean, developmental developmental neurology. Now, but you know, this is all well done, and we've talked about the microbiome now, etc. But all the the people are waiting for the the role of the bugs and the liver. And I have to say that your lab has contributed tremendously to the field on various aspects. Uh, recently, you've shown that the microbiome is involved in acute liver failure. Um, can you elaborate on that, Ola? Sure. Um, so, so we published recently this, uh, this work in which we basically observed that, uh, that the mice that uh, are germ-free or if they are treated with antibiotics, uh, they seem to have um, a milder acute liver failure, which we um, inflict using uh, acetaminophen or with uh, another uh, hepato hepatotoxin called thiacetamide. And, uh, and we wanted to go a little bit uh, deeper to understand why this uh, disease is milder. Also, the, the liver uh, enzyme levels, so, so ALT, AST, were, were lower uh, in, in these mice treated with antibiotics. And uh, so what we've done is, uh, as, I've seen, as I explained before, we needed to look into what happens in the cells of the liver. And we did single cell sequencing. And that gave us a lot of information of what happens in cells in, norm, in mice that have a microbiome and in mice that have this, uh, don't have microbiome because of antibiotics or being germ-free. And what we found out is that uh, there are some particular genes uh, that are expressed to the lower level in, in germ-free mice. And basically, these are the genes that are immune response uh, or the, in the inflammatory genes uh, in the liver. And uh, we used uh, some knockout mice and uh, small molecular inhibitors to understand this a little bit further. And what we found out is that the signaling from um, uh, bacterial molecules, so pathogen-associated molecular patterns such as uh, LPS or uh, peptidoglycan, they go through uh, into the liver from the microbiome, so from the gut through the portal circulation, and then they are kind of additive uh, in a signal with damage-associated molecular uh, patterns that come from damaged hepatocytes uh, from from the toxic toxicity of the of the compounds. And these two together then cause this response. And we found out that uh, it's mediated through TLR signaling because these, uh, these are known to, to act on, on TLRs and through MAP kinase to the transcription factor that is called MEC. Uh, and this basically show us that it's kind of um, an additive effect and, uh, uh, and, and basically, um, uh, the, the, the microbiome uh, and the kind of damaged hepatocyte act in the same way. Um, and then we also looked into the humans and we saw that this transcription factor MEC is also elevated in the level in, um, in humans who have acute liver failure. So this suggests uh, that probably um, it's the same mechanism that this, this mechanism is conserved uh, across the species.
So uh, th this was just a recent part of your work, but over the years, both uh, Iran and some of it joining his work was mostly on, on NAFLD, obesity and nutrition. So you actually, Iran, was the first, I think, to show the switch from NAFLD to NASH was associated with microbiome. And following that, there's a lot of uh, work on the subject of microbiome in NAFLD. So, you know, I'll, I'll be happy if you could, to, could tell that to the audience. Yeah, so, so um, you know, be, being a, a clinical hepatologist in my previous life and, and a microbiome researcher uh, now, um, I think that the liver uh, is probably the most well-studied and, and, and probably most interesting um, systemic organ that demonstrate the, the amazing power of, of microbiome-mediated signals. Um, given basically the fact that it's a first-pass organ that, that sees through the portal circulation, many of the molecules coming uh, from, from either food, um, um, the bugs themselves, or are modified chemically by the bugs. Um, and, and so we've, we've been studying um, the liver um, in that sense for, for almost a decade and a half. And indeed, um, 11 years ago, uh, we published in Nature uh, a very peculiar observation at the time um, in which um, NAFLD in three different models of mice seemed to be very dramatically modulated by interventions that target the microbiome, either by antibiotics, by, um, by in, in germ-free mice, and most importantly, by transfer of disturbed configurations of microbes into mice um, that, that could either um, ameliorate or exacerbate um, these NAFLD models, telling us that this highly heterogeneous disease in humans and in animal models is probably modulated by a combination of non-microbiome risk factors plus signals that come from the, the microbiome. And we were lucky to uh, decode some of these early signals, but this uh, was followed up by an amazing um, um, assortment of, of high quality studies from this rapidly expanding field, which actually taught us that the microbiome in its biochemical function in um, digesting food and other related molecules um, actually sends many signals through the part of circulation which impact the liver at health and may impact um, um, the, the pathogenesis of either NAFLD or its progression into NASH. And, and, and today, with, with the deepening understanding of the molecular nature of these molecules and how they signal to the liver, we're starting to have a fuller picture of these contributions by the microbes. So, so I can just maybe name a few famous examples of, of molecules that are either produced or modulated by discrete gut microbes swim where they swim to the liver and impact uh, nafod for example short chain fatty acids uh, uh, butyrate acetate and propionate among others um, are generated massively by the gut microbiome and in in the setup of of NAFLD, they may impact the gut barrier function um, impairing it in people with NAFLD, leading to an influx of microbial molecules into the liver which um, um, could impact um, that oxidation um, could impact um, lipogenesis, um, adding to um, other factors from the host that um, induce NAFLD. And some of these short-chain fatty acids could actually impact the inflammatory response, which in a minority of patients would make them progress from NAFLD to NASH and its complications. Uh, um, so, so we know of molecules that um, induce uh, regulatory T cells, 
we know of molecules that suppress inflammation through um, the um, quenching of the uh, TH17 response. Um, and all of these responses may tell us why some people uh, develop NAFLD and others do not, and why some people with NAFLD end up progressing into NASH, into cirrhosis, and even into um, um, liver cancer um, based on their unique signatures of microbes that they are lucky or unlucky to carry while others are not. And we already have the tools to, to identify these, these people. I mean, so this is one of the problems. I mean, we talk about diversity, we talk about different bugs, but we cannot actually, you know, pinpoint or kill one bug which might be harmful or helpful. Absolutely. And one of the challenges, um, but I think also of the promises of our young field, um, is the, the, the complexity of, of, of this ecosystem. So, so you know, uh, we've been used to having 20-something thousand genes that, um, you know, make up who we are and how we look and how we behave and how long we live. These are the very important human genes. But in, in a matter of less than a decade, we've been introduced to 3 million more genes coming from our microbes that are an inherent part of our bodies, at least that's what I think, and, and we knew almost nothing about them. So, so the complexity uh, rose, you know, folds um, um, in a very short span, and, and we're still trying to deal with it. So, so all of the fancy methodologies that Ola specified are ones which we try to map these huge um, fingerprints of different uh, humans, uh, their genetic makeup of the microbes, the small molecule repertoires that they carry, and together with big data technologies such as machine learning, AI technologies, we are increasingly able to characterize this fingerprint and to differentiate or to predict who would be the patients that are more susceptible or less susceptible to develop um, a certain type of clinical uh, disease or complication. And in that sense, the liver is uh, a very major part um, of, of research, given the fact that it is so um, well impacted by microbes and their products. First of all, I want to say that both you and Ola probably inherited good microbiomes because you look wonderful, both of you. The second <laughs> thing is uh, we move on from fatty liver to PSC, which is you know a great favorite of mine, being part of the International PSC Study Group. And I think this is you know a disease where there's a signature, I wouldn't say proof yet, although there's come some data coming, there is a signature of response to antibiotics suggesting that there might be you know, the driving, the, the driving cause uh, of PSC, because as you know, this is one of those diseases that we don't have anything, it's, it's progressive, and it causes debilitating disease in young people. And, it, you know, you, when you look at diseases, you need to find the root cause. Is the root cause in PSC microbiome, Ola? Uh, I don't think we, we really know, this is because this, this is really still very mysterious, but the fact that, um, uh, that many of the patients who have PSC also have IBD really strongly links it to the, to the gut, to the microbiome. So uh, this is very suggestive of, of such, uh, such, such interactions. But um, the mechanisms that were shown up to date are, I think the, the issue there maybe is because the studies are done in, in knockout mice, the MDR2 knockout mice, which are maybe not the perfect model of the disease because we don't really know what causes the disease. So it's difficult to model and that leads to, to these difficulties. Uh, but uh, definitely that's, uh, that's some uh, like area that should be, should be studied more. 
So yeah. we have we only have a few more minutes. So so I want to move on to two two important areas. One is, you know, the therapeutic tool in a sense in the microbiome field has been fecal microbial transplantation, and for for me, there are several issues. First, it's a heavy heavy hammer. You take millions of millions of bacteria, some of them probably harmful, some are not, and uh, putting them into people. Uh, the acceptance of it and others. And I, I know you've been involved heavily in fecal microbial transplantation uh, uh, experiments. And I was wondering, uh, what's your thought about the, the, the development of the field? Is it going to be, we're going to transplant, you know, single microbes or, or something like that? Is it going to be, are we going to be able to colonize uh, colons with bacteria that do not belong to us, etc.? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, which, which relates to, um, again, um, kind of the future prospect of the field. So, so with the deepening mechanistic understanding of, of the interactions um, and the molecular nature of these interactions, we're starting to identify therapeutic targets that could at least theoretically be harnessed towards human treatment. And I think fecal microbiome transplantation has been um, a fantastic proof of concept to the potential power of the microbiome, especially in Clostridium difficile colitis, you know, where it... Um, you know, uh, transformed uh, um, some patients with multi-drug resistant recurrent infection. Uh, um, so, so, you know, FMT um, was very valuable in teaching us that the microbiome is important, at least in some clinical context. But as you say, we, and, and this is only my two cents, um, you know, we also need to be very careful with fecal microbiome transplantation because it's a non-defined treatment. Um, um, we, we, we are very much limited by donor selection. Uh, some donors are better than others. Some are called super donors. We don't know how to identify them. And we need to remember that with FMT, there are risks. And, and, and you know, a, a few years ago, uh, in two separate clinical trials, um, two patients got a, a, a very life-risking sepsis uh, for, from, a, from an, a very resistant E. coli. One of them was treated for hepatic encephalopathy as part of a clinical trial, and one of these two patients died. So, so FMT um, also carries uh, risks um, and, and, and if you ask me where the field would go in terms of bacterial trans transplant or bacterial transfers, I would hope and believe that with the increasing strain level knowledge, we would reach definable cocktails uh, or consortia of microbes that would be more reproducible, safer, um, and more upscalable than uh, FMT in the next decade. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, uh, you being my two guests, so I don't want to put you in a tight corner, but I will say this. So this is a field who's been around for 20 years. And you know, the initial studies of giving uh, uh, fecal transplantation from f fat obese mice to lean mice that gained weight, et cetera. And you know, it was such a big promise. So how come that in all these 20 years, the only thing is Clostridium difficile. We don't have good data in IBD. We don't have good data in obesity. I mean, What's what's what are we missing? And I mean, you two being experts in the field, should you know, tell me what are we missing? Well, maybe I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, since you know, um, I've been asked this question. And it's a fair question. Um, you know, I'll I'll just remind you, Oren. Um, <laughs> um, you know, just as one example, um, that uh, CAR T therapy, uh, which is such a big uh, hyped uh, uh, treatment now for, for good reasons um, in cancer therapy. Um, has been uh, has been there uh, and has been studied for over 30 years, and this is a much more simpler 
and, and well-recognized um, approach. Um, um, so, so things take time when, you know, when somebody comes up with an idea into the preclinical setting, um, and, and here we're talking about a huge multi-parameter equation that, that we're just starting to scrape the surface. Um, so, so this is a 15-year-old field um, that is slowly but surely maturing. There are many challenges. Um, in many cases, there is overhype, over which is also very natural um, in these kinds of revolutions. Um, so the jury is still out there, but I can tell you that from the relatively non-specific and in many cases not sufficiently evidence-based approaches that involve the microbiome, such as probiotics, uh, prebiotics, and in many cases FMT, which in complex diseases is far from being you know, evidence-based, uh, we are slowly moving towards much more science and data-driven approaches, at least experimentally, that are making huge promises and also are starting to deliver. And these include personalized nutrition, which we, we basically coined and, 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 uh, and, and, and were uh, the first to, to study, but also more defined transfer, uh, um, um, uh, transfer modalities of microbes, um, the replenishment of small molecules when they're missing, which we call postbiotic therapy. And lately, and, and we, we just published this, uh, I think for the first time, um, we've, we've come up with, I think, an elegant solution for one of the biggest unmet needs, which is how do we get rid of a microbe within this ecosystem when we know that it causes or contributes to a disease, but we cannot give antibiotics, they're non-specific, they have uh, adverse effects, they, they would cause uh, the emergence of uh, resistant bugs. So this was a huge challenge that was unmet, and we came up with one solution, which is the administration of a combination of different phages in a very highly rational approach that would attack a strain of interest through different channels without impacting the microbial ecosystem that surrounds it. And we've done this in IBD in both humans and mice. And, and this, I think, is one of these experimental modalities, of course, that still needs to be validated, proven, and expanded. But it's showing you where this field is going into in terms of precision and data utilization. Okay, you persuaded me, and I'm sitting anxiously waiting for the next microbiome-based therapy, which I'm sure is going to come because it's a really, really exciting field. So I want to thank both of you for this really, you know, exciting, stimulating, very, very nice and friendly talk. And I want to conclude. Thank you all for listening, and good night. And thank you for having us, Oren. Thank you. Thank you.